Family, welcome back to Foothill Family Church online. It is good to have you joining us tonight. Do me a favor. Go ahead and hit that like button down below. Go ahead and share this tonight's message as well. It's good to have the technology to be able to send the gospel around the world. We love you. It was so good to see you this morning. We hope you enjoy the online services as well. Find my strength in 
is the lamb that was slain worthy is the lamb that was slain worthy is the lamb that was slain for me for me for me for me he gave it all for me and worthy is the lamb that was slain worthy is the lamb that was slain worthy is the lamb that was slain hallelujah king forever hallelujah give praise to Hallelujah. 
Father, we thank you for this night, for your word. Thank you for who you are, God. We give you all the praise, all the honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good evening, everybody. It's good to be back with you to teach the word. But I've got to tell you, after this morning, having everybody here together, I think I miss you now more than ever. I'm going to start in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, it says, After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whether he himself would come. Therefore he said unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he, would go, that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Now, I don't want to read the rest of this. It tells what he instructed them to do. I will point out uh, something down in verse 8 where he said, And into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as, as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Now let's skip down to verse 17 where they come back and report to Jesus. And the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Now, there's nothing in the previous verses uh, from verse 1 through verse 17. There's nothing said about casting the devil out. There's nothing said about exercising authority over the devil. Uh, the only thing that's mentioned is uh, into the cities that would receive them, heal the sick. And say the kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. So Jesus makes the connection uh, here in Luke chapter 10 as he does in numerous other places about healing the sick being part of the kingdom of God. And so he says, Lord, they said to Jesus, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And Jesus said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Now, I don't believe that means he saw Satan's lightning fall from heaven when the disciples, the 70, went out and ministered in these cities. I think he's talking about when the devil took a third of the angels and rebelled against God and was cast out of heaven into the earth, falling, as Jesus describes, as lightning from heaven. He's trying to tell us that Satan is a defeated foe for those who know their authority. Now, folks, this is still Old Testament times. This is not, Jesus is not talking about people that have been made righteous. He's not talking about the authority that we have because of his death, burial, and resurrection. He's just simply saying that Satan is a defeated foe for any man that knows his authority. Jesus was a man that operated without sin in his life. He was pure. And he was the only human being on the planet that ever has been on the planet after Adam and Eve to be able to live in such a state or such a condition in, in, uh, in righteousness in a physical sense. We know that the Bible says that Christ was made sin for us who knew no sin so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But that doesn't apply to, to Luke chapter 10. He's talking to people that were still under the old covenant. And he's saying that Satan is a defeated foe for anybody that understands authority. Now you may remember that was a, a key point in Matthew chapter 8, when the centurion came to Jesus 
and said, my servant lies at home sick of the palsy. And Jesus says, I'll come to your house and heal him. And the centurion says, I'm not worthy that you should come to my house, but speak the word only and my servant will be healed. For or because, here's how he knew to operate that way or knew he could operate that way. For I am a man under authority having soldiers under me. And I say, go and do something and they go and do it. Or I tell them to come and they come. And Jesus marvels at that and says, I haven't found such great faith, no, not in Israel. He's not talking about that kind of faith in, uh, or that kind of understanding and authority in the new covenant. He's talking about it among the people of Israel who are under the bondage of sin and death because of Adam's original sin. So here where Jesus says, I've beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, he's further identifying that just as he, as a righteous man anointed of the Holy Ghost to reveal the Father to mankind, even as he operates under the anointing that was given to him, he delegates that anointing to the disciples first, the 12 first, and then the 70 after that. And he identifies, he proves to them that they have authority over the work of the devil. He didn't specify over evil spirits, but obviously the, the 70 got out in the cities that they were sent to, and some of them Maybe not all, but some of them at least ran into somebody that was demon-possessed or oppressed by an evil spirit. And so they did what they've seen Jesus do. You may remember in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16. It says, and when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils and that were sick. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Well, they've obviously seen Jesus cast out the devil with his word. So that must be the pattern that they followed. We don't have any specific information about it, but we would assume that they did what they had seen him do. And they find out that the devils are subject to them in the name of Jesus. Jesus went further and said in verse 19, Behold, I give unto you power, to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Two different words are used in translated power in this one verse. The first word, behold, I give unto you power, that's really the word that's used for authority. He's saying, I give you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power. Now, this word power is, is uh, faithfully translated. It's a good translation. It means ability. So the first time the word power is used in verse 19 really means authority. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the ability of the devil. The Bible doesn't say we have greater ability than he does. It says we have authority over all of his ability. Behold, I give unto you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now, folks, if Jesus meant what he said here, He's telling us that even under the old covenant, which was not as good a covenant as what we have, which was redemption and forgiveness of sins and righteousness imputed to them, counted to their favor. But for us, it's realized. For us, it's true righteousness. For us, it's a new birth, a new creation, a new species of being because of Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection. So he's saying that anybody that operates under their authority the authority that's been given in the name of Jesus can stop, 
unravel, loose the devil's workings in their life in every respect and in every possible way. If he told us the truth, if he said what he meant, he said, authority, your authority exists in the name of Jesus over all the ability of the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Now I want you to look with me also to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, I'm going to begin, begin reading in verse 1. It says, And they came over into the other side of the sea, into the country of the Gadarenes. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no not with chains, because that he had often been bound with fetters and chains. This word fetters means shackles. He had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces. Neither could, the, could any man tame him. And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him. And cried with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he had said unto him, Jesus had already said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that they would not send them away out of the country. Now there was, at, there was nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave. And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. And there were about 2,000. And these were choked into the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that was done. And when they came to Jesus and saw him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion. Notice how he says that. There was one evil spirit, one unclean spirit that was in control of the others. But there were a bunch of others that were known as the legion. So when they came to Jesus and saw him that was possessed with the devil. The one who identified his name to Jesus and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid and they that saw it told him how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine and they began to pray him to depart out of their coast we can't have any more miracles that help people please leave and when he was come unto the ship he that had been possessed with the devil prayed him that he might be with him Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but said unto him, Go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord has done for thee, and has had compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all the men did marvel. You remember that Jesus told the 70 that if the cities would receive them, then that was the place that they were to heal the sick and say, The kingdom of God has come nigh unto you. Representatives of the people in the city have come out to Jesus after he's performed this great delivering miracle upon the man that made his home in the, in the cemetery among the tombs. They reject him. They don't reject what he's done. They don't disbelieve what he's done, but they don't want any more part of Jesus. And so he simply gets in a boat and starts going somewhere else. This man that was delivered of the evil spirit and the legion this man wants to go with Jesus. 
Well, I don't blame him. I'd have wanted to stick close to Jesus too, wouldn't you? But Jesus wouldn't let him do it. Jesus tells him to go home to his friends and tell how the Lord has had compassion on him. Then when it says in verse 20, he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. The result of him publishing or declaring, and we think of publishing as being publishing books or papers or something like that, but it simply means to herald or to make known. So when he started making known the things that Jesus had done for him, and he's pretty famous in that region of, of the country, I'm sure, so that people who might not recognize him right off because he has cut his hair and washed himself up and he's got on clean clothes, which beats no clothes, I'm sure that people recognized after uh, not too long a period of time who this guy was and recognizes and sees the difference. They see what he, what he looks like when he's free. When he began to publish this in his own country, Matthew chapter 15 tells us the result of that and it's one of the greatest episodes of healings and ministry that Jesus had in his three years of ministry here on the earth. It talks about how they healed them all. It talks about people that were maimed were healed. When people saw and heard the testimony of this guy, this formerly madman of Gadara, how that the compassion of the Lord and the power of God broke the power of the devil and, and he was operating in supernatural power. No question about that. He's been chained up and shackled up numerous times. And every time he just breaks those chains apart like they're nothing. But folks, that's supernatural. Even the smallest chain can't be broken by physical strength. So he was operating under the influence of the devil and it produced signs and wonders for the people to, to consider. But now they see him clothed and in his right mind. And it brings about his publishing, his testifying to what God has done for him set up one of the greatest events or campaigns, if you will, that Jesus had in his three and a half years of ministry. Now I want you to compare this with me to Mark chapter 9. Jesus goes to the mountain of transfiguration. Peter and James and John are with him. The other disciples are left at the foot of the hill. The glory of the Lord appears and Moses and Elijah appear in the glory. Peter gets ahead of himself. He got so excited he just said something didn't really consider, I'm sure, how stupid what he was saying really was. But then they hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, hear him. Well, after these things take place, it tells us that Jesus came back to his disciples in verse 14. And he saw a great multitude about them and the scribes questioning with them. And straightway all the people, when they beheld him, were greatly amazed, and running to him, saluted him. And he asked the scribes, What question ye with them? And one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And whithersoever he taketh him, he tears him, and he foams and gnashes with his teeth, and pines away. And I spoke to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. Please notice it doesn't say they wouldn't. It doesn't say that they told the father Jesus will be coming down from the top of the mountain pretty soon whenever he goes away and prays like that and takes the, the three with him his closest inner circle something good always happens so let's just wait here for Jesus to come back that would be correct in saying that they would not do anything 
But here where it says they couldn't do anything implies that they tried and failed. And there are other translations that bring that out. I know the Spanish Bible, the Spanish translation is real good about that particular thing. It says they tried and failed. So he says, I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out and they could not. He answered him, not the disciples, but Jesus answered the father and said, O faithless generation, how, shall, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. And they brought him unto him, and when he saw him, straightway the spirit tore him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, How long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, Of or since he was a child. And oftentimes it has cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the foul spirit, saying unto him, Thou dumb and deaf spirit, I charge thee, come out of him and enter no more into him. And the spirit cried and rent him sore and came out of him. And he was as one dead in so much that many said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he was coming to the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could not we cast him out? And he said unto them, this kind, this kind can come forth by nothing but by prayer and fasting. Luke's account of this adds another thing that Jesus said. He said, Because of your unbelief, but this kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Did Jesus have to stop and go to pray? Did Jesus make an appointment with the Father to come back in a couple of days after he's been able to fast? And in, in that same line, in setting the mad man from Gadara free from the, the evil spirit that possessed him and the legion that inhabited him, did Jesus have to pray for some extended period of time? Did Jesus have to pray and fast to have the authority to cast out those evil spirits from him? If we go back and look at it, you might remember that it says Jesus had already said to the evil spirit, come out of him. And the evil spirit influenced the man to fall down and worship him and say, I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. Jesus had already given the command for the evil spirit to come out before any of those things happened or were said. And that's when Jesus asked him his name. And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And then the rest of the story takes hold or takes part, takes place. That's what I'm trying to say. Where the evil spirits go out of the man into the swine, and the swine kills themselves and run headlong into the sea. So here, Jesus answers the Father. We're back in Mark chapter 9. Jesus says to the Father, O faithless generation, how long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. Why didn't Jesus rebuke the disciples? Why didn't Jesus turn to the disciples and shake his head and say, I'll leave you guys for just an hour or two. And now look at what a condition we are. Look how you've shamed the ministry that God had sent me here on the earth to accomplish. What did I pick you guys for disciples for anyway? 
any of those things could rightly have been said. But Jesus recognizes that no matter how much faith the disciples may or may not have had, it's the faith of the Father that's going to make the difference. It's the faith of the Father that's going to determine what happens to this child. It's the faith of the Father because he's the one that has authority. The implication is the evil spirit has such a hold or control over this guy, this son, that he's not in a condition or is not capable of making these decisions on his own. So the father has authority, at least some measure of authority. So Jesus says to him, the father, O wicked and faithless generation, how long shall I suffer you? Bring him unto me. That's when the father tries to, well, the father shows what his position of faith is, which is virtually none, by turning and saying to Jesus, if you can do anything to help us, please have compassion on us and help us. Now he's trying to put it back over on Jesus, just like he put it over on the disciples. Well, even Jesus wasn't able to, to minister in places that he wasn't received or the places where people didn't believe in him. You remember in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, it says he could there do no mighty work. doesn't say he wouldn't. It says he could, do there, could there do no mighty work, save or accept he laid his hands upon a few sickly folks, a few folks with minor ailments, and got them healed. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Well, here Jesus, it doesn't say that he marveled at his unbelief, but he recognizes that the unbelief of the Father is the, is the hindrance to the whole thing. Now, the Father, I'm sure he's thinking that he's doing the best that he can possibly do for his son by getting him in the presence of Jesus. He had to have heard that Jesus was healing the sick and casting out devils. And therefore, he would be a source of help for this father and his son. He would be a source of deliverance from this evil thing that's plagued this, this young man all of his life. But he still has to believe. No matter how serious, how tragic, how difficult, how life-threatening the circumstances are in this life, it still requires faith to get God's help. And you're the one that has authority over your body. You're the one that has authority in your family. You're the one that has authority in your church. It's not up to Jesus to do something. It's up to Jesus to respond to faith, which he always did. But it's up to the Father to exercise authority in that situation. So Jesus responds. The Father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus, in verse 23, said, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believe it. The original text brings out a little bit more meaning uh, to what Jesus said. There's no punctuation, so it's difficult sometimes to get to the true meaning. I'm sure the translators did the best possible job they could, and, and by and large, they did great in giving us the interpretation that they, got, that they gave us. But there are things that they might not have known about God. There are things that the translators didn't know about the character and the nature of God. The translators certainly didn't understand that God was not the author of sickness and disease. Because particularly in the Old Testament, over and over again, they translate God's word into, if you will obey me, if you will do what I tell you to do, then I will bring healing and, and blessing to your land. But if you don't do what I tell you to do, if you don't do what my commandments and my statutes dictate, 
then I'll bring sickness upon you like I did in Egypt. Well, that's not at all what God did. Sickness and disease are not under God's power. They're under his authority. But they're not under God's power because God didn't create them. God didn't make sickness and disease. We know sickness and disease came on the scene here on this earth after the fall of Adam. Prior to that, everything on this earth without any presence of sin, without any sense of guilt or condemnation from God to his people, Adam and Eve were living in a righteous state here on this earth. It was the kingdom of God. It was the kingdom that God created. It was the kingdom that, that occupied only what God had created and made available for mankind. And so they're living, Adam and Eve are living for a time in a very similar condition as Jesus did, lived on this earth for the, three year, for the 33 years that he was here. There's no sin for them to feel guilty about. There's no condemnation for them to deal with. And so they're operating, even as Luke chapter 10 said earlier in the chapter, about the cities that would receive them. Jesus told the 70, if the cities will receive you, then heal the sick that are therein. He doesn't say heal the sick if there aren't any real big uh, issues. He doesn't say heal headaches or flu symptoms, but don't heal the, the, those that are leprous or those that are crippled. Jesus talks about authority to heal the sick. The authority that he designated to the 70 to heal the sick in the cities that would receive it. He talked about it as if they were all the same. Because folks, they are all the same. We don't see it that way because we recognize some sicknesses hold greater power over our bodies. And have much greater consequences from the diseases themselves. Some diseases are life-threatening. Other diseases are not. But as far as God's concerned, it's all the same. Authority in the name of Jesus will break the, break the hold of sickness over our bodies. Whether it's a, a great sickness or a lesser sickness. Whether it's something life-threatening or something that's just inconvenient and, and a nuisance, annoyance. So Jesus says to this guy, if I can. Remember that this man brought his son to Jesus because he had to have heard that Jesus was setting people free. So for the father to say, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, is to deny the very reason that he came and brought his son to Jesus in the first place. He knows Jesus can because Jesus already has. Jesus delivered others. So when he says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us, Jesus turns it right back over on him. He says, if I can, all things are possible unto him that believe. Well, the man clearly understood what Jesus was getting at because he doesn't say well Lord I thought I'd operate here on your faith I thought you could just lay hands on my child and because you're the son of God you're this great miracle worker you could just cause him to be free from this thing but he hears and understands what Jesus is saying we know that because of his response he responded Lord I believe help thou mine, own, uh, mine unbelief He's not claiming to have great faith, but he does say that he believes. Jesus has just said, all things are possible to him that believes. So he declared his faith. It certainly isn't what we can, would consider strong faith in any, by any means or any stretch of the imagination. 
But he does give Jesus something to work with. It's something that the disciples had not been able to, to search out. They were certainly less familiar with the healing power of God and the authority in the name of Jesus than Jesus was. So then they never asked the Father about believing anything. They just simply tried to do something when the Father wasn't sure that he believed anything would happen at all. And folks, there are a lot of times where people tell about being prayed for, for healing, and it didn't work. But i got to tell you, there's a lot of those situations that, know, that the individual that came to be healed or to be prayed for weren't really expecting anything in the first place. I learned from Brother Hagen that whenever somebody came and asked me what, uh, if I would agree with them for healing for their bodies, I always will, will agree. I'll oftentimes let somebody else do the praying because you can find out where somebody else is that way better than just about any other way that there, there is. But after it's over, after they pray, if it's something that I can agree with, agree with and say amen to, then I'll say amen and then I'll ask the question, is it done? And most of the time, the majority of the time, the response is, well, I sure hope so. Well, that tells me that it's not done. There have been other times where people have come to me with stories about how they prayed and God didn't honor his word. God didn't answer that prayer. And so I'll bring that to their attention and I'll say, wait a minute. If God didn't answer our prayer, then that means his word's not true. That means we've got, we might as well burn the book. Because the only way we know God is from his word. Well, that's shocking to some people to hear and they'll respond, many times they'll respond with something like, well, you know, I didn't really expect anything was going to happen. So they weren't in faith, and so they weren't in a position to receive healing any more than this father and his son was to begin with. But when Jesus says all things are possible to him that believes, then this father stands up and says, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Then Jesus ministers to the little boy and delivers him. Again, those Jesus didn't have to pray and fast about this. I think a lot of times we look at the situation in, in Mark chapter 9 where Jesus says, This kind goeth not out but by prayer and fasting. And we assume that we're not going to see the devil or we're not going to see people delivered of the oppression of the devil because how is anybody going to take the time and stop and pray and, about these things and fast? over a period of days fasting would at least mean missing one meal at the very least and since most most christians aren't willing to do that then we just kind of put authority over the devil and his power back on the the back shelf or the back burner and just move on to other things but the praying and fasting is to prepare you. Is to prepare you to hear from God. The disciples certainly didn't hear from God. They certainly didn't know what the problem was. They never did figure out what the problem was. When they came and asked Jesus, why couldn't we do anything about this? Jesus has already delivered authority unto them over all sickness and disease and over evil spirits. So they're wanting to know, you gave us the authority to be able to handle something like this, why didn't what we did work? 
And that's when Jesus said, this kind comes forth not, by, not but by prayer and fasting. He says, your unbelief was involved in this. What unbelief? Did they not believe that something would happen when they laid hands on this child? Or did they try it and fail and then figure out for themselves or reason to themselves that this must be a special case? I wonder how many people have failed to receive from God because the devil told them they were some special case. It's something that he uses to attack all of us. I'm sure he did in this situation as well. Now look with me over to Mark chapter 11. Jesus curses the fig tree. He commands it to wither and dry up from the root. Peter calls it to his attention. He says, look, master, the fig tree you cursed yesterday is withered and dried up from the root. It's dead. It, the only thing that I can imagine to compare the looks to it would have been if the tree had been struck by lightning or, or perhaps something like that. But they certainly recognized, the disciples certainly recognized that there was something out of the ordinary. There's something supernatural that happened here. So Jesus answers and says unto them in verse 22, have faith in God. There are several other translations for this. Have the faith of God. Have the God kind of faith. Well, if it was the faith of God, what other kind would God have other than the God kind of faith? One translation says reckon on God's faithfulness. I like that because it brings out something that he talks about in the next couple of verses. Reckon on God's faithfulness to hear and honor our words when we speak. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. Verse 24, Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Verse 25, and when you stand praying, forgive. If you have all against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now folks, I want to bring something to your attention. This is Old Testament forgiveness. <clears throat> not New Testament forgiveness. Old Testament forgiveness is you forgive so God can forgive you. New Testament forgiveness is forgive because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. New Testament forgiveness is forgive as God gave, forgave us before we ever asked for it, before we ever sought out any forgiveness or redemption of anything, any type whatsoever. Forgive like God forgives you. So we're going to have to tweak this a little bit to make this a New Testament operation of faith I believe since this is the, the only time that Jesus ever talked about the hindrance to faith now let me back up a little bit and, and make sure you don't understand what I'm uh, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here where he says and shall not doubt in his heart in verse 23 he's certainly telling us that doubting in the heart or speaking according to circumstances or feelings rather than according to God's word. That will nullify faith. But verse 25 talks about a hindrance to faith. When you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any. The Bible says in the Old Testament, God commanded his people. And we see it over and over and over again, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy. 
And then we see the results throughout the history of Israel. In the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God said, if you keep my commandments and walk in my statutes, I'll take sickness away from the midst of you and the number of your days you shall fulfill. Well, they had the 630 commandments to be uh, to hold as a measuring stick. We certainly know of the Ten Commandments that were the, the major ones that they were to keep. But Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 33, I believe it is, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. As I have loved you, so shall you love one another. So if we combine the principle of the Old Testament with the New Testament commandment, the commandment of the New Covenant, then we could paraphrase it to say, if you'll walk in love, if you'll keep my New Covenant commandment of love, then I'll take sickness from the midst of you and the number of days you shall fulfill. I remember Brother Hagin told a story about a, a couple, a young couple, that he was familiar with. They had been in the ministry themselves and he was holding a, a several week long meeting at a certain church and they were part of that church. They had been missionaries if I remember correctly but they were off of the, had come off of the mission field for a while <coughs> Excuse me. and um, uh, so they being acquaintances with brother and sister Hagen, they asked them if they could take them to lunch one day after one of the morning services and brother Hagen said yeah that'd be fine so they went to lunch and while they were there at the cafeteria or the diner, whatever they had, whatever this, this town had available, she looked at Brother Hagen and said, Brother Hagen, you've got me in trouble. And he said, I don't know what you mean, but the chances are you were in trouble before I got here. And the word just showed it up. So he said, what's the problem? She said, well, you said last night when you were preaching, you quoted the scripture, he that hated his brother is a murderer. Brother Hagin said, yeah, I remember that. I sure did. And then she responded. Oh, she, then she said, and then you added, that means mother-in-law too. And that got a big laugh out of the rest of the church, of course. And then Brother Hagin said, well, what's your problem? She said, I hate my mother-in-law. And so Brother Hagin said, well, if that's true, then you're a murderer. And there is no eternal life abiding in you. And then she started talking about her pedigree. Her parents had been ministers, pastors of a church. She was born in the parsonage of a church that, their pastor, that her parents were pastoring. She had grown up in full gospel churches. And after laying out her qualifications for eternal life, Brother Hagin just laughed and said, I don't care if, you, if all those things were true and multiplied a hundred times. You're still a murderer if you hate your mother-in-law. She said, what am I going to do? And then Brother Hagin said this. He said, I want you to do something for me. I want you to look me in the eye and say these words, I hate my mother-in-law. And at the same time you do that, check down on the inside of you and your spirit to see what's happening. So she looked over him, caught his eye, looked him right in the eyes and said, I hate my mother-in-law. Then Brother Hagin said, what's happening on the inside of you? She said, something down there is scratching me. And Brother Hagin laughed and said, well, of course, that's your spirit. Your spirit's trying to influence you to walk in love rather than walk in hate. She said, what am I going to do? He said, treat your mother like you would if you really did love her because you do. So then she started treating her mother-in-law differently. Now, about a week passed, 
They're still in the same meeting. The, uh, the revival's continuing to go on and, and will go on for another couple of weeks after. But Brother Hagin got a call at the hotel that he was staying in, and it was this lady. She's already patched things up with her family. She's already walked in love and, and begun treating her mother-in-law in a much different way. She's already reported back to Brother Hagin that she sees now where she was making a mistake, that her mother-in-law and, and her whole uh, husband's family are just wonderful people. They love God. They might have little quirks or be a little dip, bit, bit different about certain things, but everybody has that. And so she's already worked through these things. So when she, the phone call came to Brother Hagen, it was this lady, and she explained to uh, Brother Hagen how that her daughter would have these epileptic seizures. I'm not sure if they even knew to call it epilepsy at the time, but she would have these seizures, and they would just devastate this little girl. And there, there were some minor things that would happen, some telltale signs about one of these grand mal seizures or whatever it's called. I think that's what they used to call it, but I don't know about it anymore. That there would be a preliminary attack or preliminary uh, circumstances that would alert them to what's coming. And so she said, he, she's, my daughter is in the middle of one of those preliminary attacks. Could you stop by here on your way to the church? Well, their house was on the way, so it wouldn't cost them much in the way of time or anything. So Brother Hagin said, yes, sure, we'll, we're leaving the house right now. We'll swing by there and be there in just a few minutes. Brother Hagin said he got in the car with his wife and he heard something that sounded to him like it was a voice coming from the back seat. And this voice said, don't lay your hands on the child. Don't lay your hands on the mother. Say to the, tell this to the mother. Mother, say to Satan, Satan, I'm walking in love. Take your hands off my child. Brother Hagin stopped and he asked, his wife if she heard that because to him it seemed like it was an audible voice she said she didn't hear anything so it was just something that rang on the inside of him I suppose so anyway they went over to the house and this little girl is there in, in bed in her bedroom and she's having this preliminary attack the mother and father are so glad to see brother Hagen because they're wanting him to minister to them to the daughter and hopefully God will heal the girl and, and take her away from this terrible thing. And so Brother Hagin then told her, the Lord instructed me how to minister here. He told me not to lay hands on the child, but to tell you this, Mother, say to Satan, take your hands off my daughter. I'm walking in the new commandment of love. Brother Hagin said, I no sooner than got those words out of my mouth that the mother wheeled around and pointed to her daughter and said, Satan, I'm walking in love. You take your hands off my daughter in Jesus' name. Brother Hagin said, as fast as you could snap your fingers, that seizure stopped. That preliminary attack stopped. The little girl came to herself, so to speak. When she would go through these things, she'd be out of it and not know where she was or what she was doing and that type of thing. But there was no evidence of it whatsoever. And so they went on to the service. Long story short, the end result of this story is for the next 30 years or so, Brother Hagen had lost contact with these people, made reacquaintance with them through a, uh, by being in a place where they were close to. And so they asked about the daughter. The daughter would be grown and have kids on her own. 
at this point in time if, if she was healthy, and she did. And so the mother said, after talking about what had happened that night 30 years before, the mother declared, or Brother Hagin asked her, just point blank, I believe, he said, has this thing ever tried to come back on her? And the mother said, there was one time, just a couple of years after the time that you were with us, and told us what the Lord said to you about how to minister to the child. There was one time when she started going through this preliminary attack, and the mother said, oh, no, you don't, Mr. Devil. I'm walking in love. You take your hands off my daughter. And it stopped, and they've never seen any more trace of it since then. Now, folks, when did the mother gain authority to, to deal with her, the, the devil's operation in her daughter's life? It wasn't just that night. But what the Lord told Brother Hagin to tell her sparked faith on the inside of her so that when she used this authority over the devil concerning her daughter, her daughter was made whole. She had authority over the devil all the time, but she didn't know it. Or she didn't know what the limits of that authority entailed. She didn't know how far her authority would go. Now somebody might say, yeah, but that won't work for me because I'm not walking in love. Well, neither was this mother a couple of days before. But when she made things right and began to walk in the new commandment of love toward her mother-in-law, the Holy Spirit inspired her through Brother Hagin certainly, but inspired her to take authority and exercise authority over the devil to stop the devil's harming her daughter by the means of these epileptic seizures. Folks, we really have nothing to be afraid of where the devil is concerned. Our authority over the devil is so much greater than any power he has. Unless he has us blinded to the truth, unless he has us deceived about who he is versus who we are in Christ, our authority over the devil is so much farther and so much greater than anything that he could bring to bear that Jesus made statements like all things are possible to them that believe. All things are possible to them that believe. Think about that. All things are possible. There are no impossibilities if we'll believe God's word. Absolutely none. No, po no impossibilities whatsoever. No limits, no boundaries if we're walking in the word. No boundaries, no impossibilities to them that believe. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We magnify your name. We thank you, Father, that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so high are your ways above man's ways. But you've revealed them to us, Father. You've given us your word to identify your actions, your works. But even more importantly, we know your ways, Father. Father, I pray on behalf of everybody under the sound of my voice. Satan, we take authority over you in the name of Jesus. We declare that since we're walking in love, keeping the new commandment of love, you have no power to bring sickness and disease upon our flesh. 
We command you to take your hands off of our bodies in the name of Jesus. Father, I, at this moment, I remind you that I believe that I receive healing for every person in our church, every person that considers Foothill Family Church to be their home church. We believe that we receive healing from the top of our head to the soles of our feet, particularly over this coronavirus thing. We thank you, Father, for your sustaining power. We thank you for your delivering power. We thank you for your healing power. Oh, we bless you, Father. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking our infirmities and bearing our sicknesses. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for bringing to pass the power of God in response to the things that we say and the things that we believe in our heart. We pray these things in the mighty and majestic name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Amen. Amen. Well, folks, thank you for being with us. We'll be right back here Wednesday night at 7 o'clock for live stream. And then we'll be back next Sunday morning at 930 for a live service. Have a great week. We love you.